I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is the weekly briefing for the week ending February 11th. This week's podcast is sponsored by Synopsys. Synopsys, powering the new era of smart everything from silicon to software. Two of the biggest trends in the electronics industry are the Internet of Things and artificial intelligence. The two can be considered separately, but the fact is they're already closely intertwined. The IoT is creating demand for more sophisticated computing farther and farther away from data centers, and AI is being used to make that migration work. This week, our guest is Matt Gutierrez. He's an engineer and a senior director of marketing at Synopsys, and we're going to talk about AI at the edge. First, here's a quick overview of some of the other stories we covered in EE Times this week. There were two big stories this week, and they have a point of overlap. First, NVIDIA called off its proposed mega-merger with ARM. That deal was contingent on the approval of multiple global regulatory agencies. Now, whether China was ever going to evaluate the deal is a question that now will never be answered. But while NVIDIA and ARM were waiting, opposition elsewhere was beginning to gel. ARM, a private company, was and is in need of massive amounts of capital, which is part of the reason it was willing to be acquired by NVIDIA in the first place. Now, the company is pursuing the only viable option it has left, which is a public offering. Meanwhile, Intel's Foundry service made further commitments to support customers and potential customers building processors using the RISC-V architecture. The company announced partnerships with Andes Technology, Esperanto Technologies, Sci-5, and Ventana Microsystems. Intel said it will also join RISC-V International, the nonprofit organization that helps manage the development of RISC-V technology. So, I mentioned a point of overlap in those two stories, and RISC-V is it. Arm reported it was losing potential business as more companies began to choose RISC-V instead. All along, Arm hoped to help its licensees challenge Intel in the data center market, but Arm reported it had met with only minimal success. So, Intel doubling down on RISC-V almost seems like piling on. And finally, we've got a story on a research effort to build quantum microprocessors out of Diamond. Now, even if I could explain how it might work and why, an iffy proposition to be honest, I am certain I could not do it in any less time than it would take you to pop on over to our website and read the article. The website, now that I mention it, is at eetimes.com. Visit to get all the details on these stories and many others. If you're on this episode's webpage already, there are links directly to the articles I just mentioned. Remember, you can sign up for EE Times newsletters. Our daily includes breaking news, and we also have several newsletters dedicated to specific coverage areas. Just find the button on top of our homepage that says subscribe. The industry has been building, and continues to build, enormous data centers. That attracted the business of companies interested in doing AI training. Artificial intelligence training has traditionally relied on enormous data sets and vast amounts of computational power to process them. 
So it was natural that AI processing started migrating to data centers. And if you'll allow me to remind you of something you already know, all that processing power requires a lot of power power. It requires a lot of energy. Meanwhile, the whole point of the Internet of Things is to move computing away from centralized computing centers and out into the world. People want computing in ever more physically remote locales. In other words, the IoT is pushing the network edge farther and farther out. This is all creating a weird tension. You want a lot of processing power out on the edge, but that's not where it is. Pushing processing power to the edge is hard because you also need power power out there to support your processing power. And in many cases, it's simply not there or not affordable for what you want to do. So how is it going to get there? Well, stay tuned. That's the topic of today's discussion. Our guest this week is Matt Gutierrez, an engineer and a senior director of marketing at Synopsys. Synopsys is, of course, one of the world's leading providers of electronic design automation systems. Right about now, you might be asking yourself what the connection is between an EDA company and artificial intelligence at the edge. This is a little roundabout, but stick with me. Last June, Synopsys bought Virage Logic for roughly $315 million. Way back in 2009, Virage had purchased ARC International. ARC stands for Argonaut Risk Core, an embedded technology that goes back to 1996. By the way, ARC is one of those lovely portmanteau three-letter acronyms. Um, portmanteau in that the acronym contains another acronym. In this case, ARC contains RISC, which stands for Reduced Instruction Set Computer. Anyway, ARC had, and still has, significant expertise in processors that combine relatively high performance while drawing minimal power. In other words, exactly what AI at the edge needs. So, here we are, with Matt Gutierrez from Synopsys. My first question to him was long and involved, but it essentially boiled down to, What's going on with AI at the edge? Well, there are um, a couple of things that are effectively enabling AI to move from the cloud to our devices and to other form of the network edge. Uh, first of all, um, there has been an improvement in the technology side. So, mm -hmm. you know, AI re is, requires quite a bit of compute power. And so um, you, needed, you need a certain amount of memory, you need a certain amount of um, processing compute power that used to only exist in the cloud. And that has been changing over the years as things move um, uh, in smaller geometries, get to uh, power envelopes that will fit into devices that live at the edge. So there's been a technology uh, evolution that has enabled AI to move. Um, at the same time, some of the AI, the neural networks themselves, um, mm -hmm. have gotten smaller and therefore um, require less resources, including to the point where they can live within the resources, the constrained resources that live in edge devices. And then last but not least, there has been an uh, application uh, requirement for things to move to the edge. So why? Well, the obvious one um, is latency. So if uh, AI has to constantly go to and from the cloud, 
then there can, there's quite a lag in uh, the data going up, the data coming back down. You consume network bandwidth. Some applications that require real-time requirements, like an autonomous vehicle, you just can't live with that latency. And so um, there's been a need to move it uh, closer to the edge or to on devices themselves. And so that that uh, intersection of the technology, the models, the software, and the requirements for real time, um, that you know, those have kind of synthesized together to, to start driving a lot of AI uh, to uh, to edge uh, computing. Now, I've also heard of uh, uh, the concern for data privacy that plays into this too, as well. Um, if uh, if your information is being sent back to the cloud, it's there and presumably accessible. If it stays local, right on your device, there's a higher expectation that that it'll, your personal data will remain private. Exactly, and there are two ways you know that that could be a problem when you're using the cloud. One is it's the uh, it's data at rest. It's sitting in the cloud. Somebody hacks it, and that data is potentially accessible to them, your data. And there is also the threat of that data getting intercepted in transit. So if it has to move from uh, a device or from a sensor to the cloud, then it's uh, susceptible to getting to getting hacked. And so you're right for both of those for security confidentiality um, reasons. That's another reason that AI is um, is uh, especially when necessary being done on devices instead of having to move it around into places where the data becomes vulnerable. And I, I couched that question in terms of of um, individual privacy, uh, somebody buying something on Amazon and revealing their credit card number or what have you. But uh, that's not what that's not the full scope of privacy. There, uh, in an enterprise um, context, uh, companies might just want to be able to make sure that they control all of their own data, right? Correct. Not only control all their data, most of them have requirements with their customers to protect their customers' data as well. So mm-hmm. there are also legal implications of it. And I'm glad you brought up, you know, financial uh, data isn't the only thing that, you know, many people consider private. Health records, images of their kids, uh, you know, right. there is a whole host of uh, reasons that uh, people want to keep data private. And it's not always financial. And it's certainly, as you mentioned, at the enterprise level as well, it goes beyond their financial data as well. It goes on to legal responsibilities for keeping their IP and their customers' information uh, private. Yeah. Well, that's all theoretical. Um, I, what, what about, are there specific use cases uh, that are driving driving the the draw of AI out of data centers? There are, uh, and there are a lot of them. And some of them, you know, you'll recognize because they're they're kind of already out there. Um, there are things like your, your smart speakers at home um, that are increasingly serving as digital assistants, being able to remind you of appointments or play music on demand. And those have been out for a while, and those are indeed, you know, an example of AI at the edge. Uh, most of them, the ones that you're familiar with, uh, Alexa-enabled devices, the Siri-enabled devices, Bixby, mm-hmm. they're they're all using cloud, um, and so they are. You know, you're asking it a question; it, it wakes up based on the word that you um, 
that you give it to detect. And then uh, it's transferring uh, data information to and from the cloud. Uh, increasingly, uh, it's getting smarter uh, at the endpoint itself. So while these devices have been out for a while, they are trying to do more and more of pre-processing uh, on-site. And so, for example, um, uh, devices that are able to recognize individuals by their voices, for example, and being able to kind of effectively personalize the responses um, that it provides you is uh, being migrated to be uh, on the device as much as possible and to minimize what has to flow out to uh, the cloud. And of course, you see all kinds of other uh, examples of AI being used in, you know, in wearables, you know, your fitness equipment, your mobile phone, of course, all of that has AI capabilities sitting at the edge, and in some cases in, in battery powered devices, which is driving a whole lot of, uh, you know, innovations around keeping the power low. Are there uh, applications that might be new uh, or, or, or are there capabilities that might be new that are being enabled by being able to put AI out, out on the edge as opposed to in the data center? Yeah, there are. And so there are a number of emerging use cases for AI at the edge, and they span a pretty wide um, a pretty wide spectrum, some of which you'll recognize and some of them which may seem kind of novel. Um, first of all, one of the ways in both these emerging use cases and existing products that are out there that they are being um, increasingly um, enhanced is a thing called uh, natural language processing. So we're all aware of the, of the voice detection, the wake-up words that all these devices get. Um, but they're, they don't, that's all it is really. It's a wake-up word that tells the device to wake up and start listening for, um, you know, for the question that might come. Natural language processing, which um, has become one of the, you know, the killer applications for AI, um, it, it's, it has the ability to understand the context of complete sentences. And some of the neural networks are actually able to parse the sentence um, in a non-sequential way. So when you and I are talking, for example, we might put words in a sentence in a different place, but we would understand the meaning the meaning once they were all together. We don't have to process everything in a sequence. We can take connections between words that may be separated by many other words and be able to understand that. And so that natural language processing, again, being enabled by all the enhancements I talked about earlier, smaller models, new AI algorithms, uh, more power uh, and memory sitting at end devices, that has become kind of a really important use case and that's making even the existing devices better. Uh, but to your point about kind of emerging use cases and things that are being done, you know, that are new, um, I think uh, there are, you know, there's, uh, as people are looking to um, put more connected cars on the road, um, AI is being used for vehicle to infrastructure, vehicle to vehicle uh, communication. Um, you have uh, uh, surveillance equipment, for example, who is taking imagery and being able to conduct AI at the edge to determine maybe it's looking specifically for people detection or license plate detection. That's increasingly being done at the end point. Um, medical uh, diagnosing is starting to become a, a real thing where AI is being used in scanning devices um, and being used uh, in for uh, uh, computed tomography scans and being able to uh, do as good or better job than, than radiologists and doctors 
who are looking at the same scans because they've been trained with enough images that they can detect things that, uh, that the human eye might not be able to. Um, of course, the big use case that everybody is um, uh, aware of and in many cases either dreading or, or can't wait is autonomous driving. <laughs> and yes. so, you know, if you think about that use case, that that encompasses almost everything that we've been talking about, about the requirements. It's got to be real time. You cannot afford uh, when you're driving down the road at 60 miles per hour to, you know, send information to the cloud of a object in the road above or whether it is an object or not, and then wait for the, it to come back in order for it to make a reaction. So there's a, a bunch of real-time processing that is that has to occur on the vehicle itself in order to accomplish autonomous driving. Um, and of course, that requires quite a bit of compute power as well. Uh, so uh, autonomous driving has become almost the poster child for AI at the edge. Uh, and then there's, you know, some more, uh, what's the word, colloquial applications that we might see on a day-to-day -day basis. For example, Ooh, um, good word. <laughs> we see, um, we have some customers who are uh, looking to apply AI to digital advertising. Uh, imagine yourself walking by uh, an electronic uh, billboard and instead of uh, the advertiser paying by the number of people walk by, if that electronic sign were able to detect eye contact, if you actually looked and noticed that digital sign and then registered that as a um, revenueable event, <laughs> something that you know, you're gonna charge for because now instead of um, uh, uh, somebody just walking by an electronic billboard, you actually know that they looked and noticed the ad, you know, that is an application that of course could have um, you know, it would be very uh, beneficial to somebody who's in that digital advertising business. Uh, that that sounds to me like an advertiser trying to minimize his his spend, but but I get that I get why it would be valuable to the advertiser nonetheless. Now, you also mentioned one that I thought was was actually weirder and maybe cooler. AI taking a a, a a look at at the person going by and making an evaluation of of what they might be interested in based on how they're dressed how they hold themselves whether they're there with a couple of children in tow or not yeah exactly not only make, making recommendations but uh if you're making suggestions. So, so imagine, you know, here's the use case. You're in a mall, right? You're going, you're weaving in and out of stores and you walk into a large department store and something uh, takes a, a look at you and it can, it can derive a whole bunch of things from that image. It can derive obviously your, your dimensions, your size, your weight, your style, uh, maybe what brands you like to wear by looking at the logos. Uh, as you mentioned, you'd be looking at uh, whether you're a parent and you have kids in tow. And then as you walk through that store, these, um, uh, the ads could be personalized to you. You walk by, it recognizes you from the minute you walked in the store, and now it starts making suggestions of styles you might like or uh, clothes that are on sale that fit the profile of what, uh, of what you were wearing when you walked in the store. So uh, yes, all of these things are possible. 
my experience on the web is, uh, you know, if I look at something, um, ads for that will follow me everywhere. Um, you know, for my business, um, you know, I might look at, um, you know, a, um, uh, a, a white box server and for the next three days, I have nothing but server ads <laughs> popping up <laughs> right. on my Facebook feed as if I were actually going to buy one for myself. Um, but I can see, I mean, taking that, that type of an activity to a logical extreme, you walk into a store, you walk into, you know, Nordstrom's and you look at a pair of shoes and then the next place, you know, when you walk into Macy's and go by the shoe department, Macy's showing you something similar to what you were looking at at Nordstrom's. Is that, is, I, I, I can imagine that happening. Technically, that's possible. The commercial aspects of Macy's wanting to share Nordstrom data and vice versa, that, that's, a, that's, a different, um, that's a different question about whether they'd be willing to do that. But, but technically, maybe, what you described is absolutely possible. Yeah, I mean, you know, like maybe, maybe again, maybe it's the the advertiser mediating, you know, uh, the or the or the ad, the ad serving organization mediating. But I, but yeah, that's that. Wow, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I want shoes following me around, um, but but that's just me. Uh, we're we're talking about some of the applications. Uh, what are some of the challenges in making this happen? So I imagine there are. With AI, I don't imagine. I know there are the the uh, the hardware aspects of it, um, and and then a lot of it obviously is software. So uh, can we talk about what some of the challenges are there, um, or maybe the categories of challenges? I know it changes from application to application. Right. Yeah, for sure. So um, so first of all, as you said, some of the challenges are intuitive, right? Um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of data. And the amount of data is increasing. If you just think, you know, we were just talking, for example, about um, uh, about a system that might, you know, a vision system that may be scanning people. And so uh, cameras, of course, are one of the big sensor uh, sources of data that are used in AI. A lot of image recognition and detection is done with AI. Those cameras are getting higher and higher resolution. And, you know, you know, if you've, uh, as you migrated from, you know, 1080p to 4K, now 8K and beyond, you know, those, the, the number, the, the file sizes, the amount of data is, is, is huge. And so um, that is one of the challenges. The larger the data sets, um, the, the more, uh, the bigger the neural networks. And of course, you also start to deal with, you know, um, if you have to move that data in, uh, from the edge to the cloud or in some kind of a hybrid mode where some of the data is processed using AI at the edge and, and some of it's processed in the cloud, that's a lot of data to be moving around and it creates all the problems that we talked about earlier about latency and network bandwidth and the privacy problems, for example. Um, so that is clearly one of the problems um, and one of the challenges. Also uh, kind of related to that, as I mentioned, the, the size of the neural networks, the graphs themselves are, um, are getting larger and larger and Typically, there's a trade-off between the size of the neural network and the accuracy. Um, so, I, you know, there's an ideal optimum point, depending on the application, of how much accuracy you need um, relative to 
um, how much data you're willing to and how deep you want you're willing to let the networks go, which impacts the size uh, of the data that you're dealing with, how many layers deep you're willing to go to get the most accuracy. And so you have to kind of make that trade off in order to um, you know get to an application level where you can, first of all, even determine if that trade-off is going to let you accomplish it with the hardware and software that's sitting at the mm-hmm. edge. With so many options, are they beginning to sort themselves out into combinations that that someone could evaluate without an expert holding their hand? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, you are 100 100- it's still, Brian, very much of the Wild West out there. Yeah, it, Let's step back a little bit. AI is in its infancy. And so um, the, the graphs themselves, the algorithms um, are evolving constantly. And then, you know, as we were talking about at the very early part of this conversation, the applications are changing. And so the applications in part are driving well, um, I can't accomplish this with AI in this application, so we have to look at a different kind of network that could accomplish it. Um, so there, the things are, can do continue to evolve. It was only about you know uh, seven or eight years ago when convolutional neural networks, which is the most common one that you hear about, it's it's the it's the class of neural network that's most commonly used to uh, analyze visual imagery, right? So vision systems, for example. Um, you know, it was only a few years ago between the various ways of implementing um, convolutional neural networks um, beat humans in being able to classify and identify uh, objects and images. Mm-hmm. And once that happened, then, you know, things kind of took off. And then you do have things like uh, DNN, which is really just a, you know, many, many layers of a, a deep layered uh, convolutional neural network. So it's a form of convolutional neural network. Um, and then as these use cases evolve, you do have neural networks that are developing specifically to address those use cases. Let me give you an example. So RNN, which stands for recurrent uh, neural networks, is a class of, uh, of neural networks that are specifically good at natural language processing. Mm. Because um, as I mentioned, you need um, a neural network needs to needs the temporal needs the time element in order to process sentences. Oh yeah, okay. So you know you know if something's presented with images, you just go through the data set and you match the images. But if if there is a sequence, if if I if I speak a word, but you have to also wait for three or four more words in order to interpret what I'm saying. For example, especially if I move words around in my sentences relative to how other people might speak, um, then you need a neural network that has a component of it that can recognize time and then stitch things back together. And so that was, that's what a, uh, an RNN is good for. And there are several classes of RNNs. Um, Transformers is a new one, um, relatively new one. That is a, it's a deep learning model that captures relationships and sequences of words that might be far apart. So, you know, as I was talking about earlier, um, it's one thing to be able to process sequential data, even to have a time element. But if that, uh, if those words are separated by many other words or even sentences, being able to um, understand that that's as a key to, to natural language processing, because we all talk in different ways, different accents, uh, we use different diction, 
um, these uh, th- those kinds of elements of of you know just like the name implies natural language um, need to be handled in the neural network and transformers are, is another example of something that has evolved uh, in recent times uh, to handle nan- specifically for uh, natural language processing type of workloads and so you know depending on um, on the application you might choose a different class of neural network to accomplish what you want to accomplish. The applications are becoming more sophisticated. They're becoming more complex. And that's having an effect on on how you solve the problem and what tools you need to mm-hmm. solve the problem. Uh, you were telling me about video, and I, I was just kind of fascinated by by the whole discussion. So when you you know when you increase resolution, you get uh, you know geometrically larger data sets, and that becomes a problem because now, for example, if you're doing image classification um, on data sets that are made up of you know thousands of 8K images as opposed to um, uh, thousands of 4K <laughs> images. Now you have uh, neural networks that take much longer to train, and uh, that's typically done in the cloud, by the way. And then the inference, basically the you know the decision making or the um, the actual result that's typically done on the device, not not uh, during training, now is being done on these larger data sets, and so it takes longer to achieve the inference. So um, there's all kinds of techniques that are being applied to um, the, the graphs themselves so that they don't get unwieldy um, uh, to, to, uh, to live at the edge. So for example, things, um, they're all about really trying to compress the size of the graphs so that they can live within the memory constraints of edge devices. There are techniques um, uh, called, for example, pruning, which is an optimization technique and it, it, its intent is basically to remove um, redundant or maybe you know very little important information from a model. So you can imagine if you were taking an 8K image, there would be a whole bunch of information in that image that isn't relevant or that's repeated a lot, like a gray sky in the background, for example. Well, that, that's that's the the essence of of video compression, right? Correct. But when it comes to the AI models themselves, right, they also have to um, they have to take into account that in order to match, you know, from the training data sets to what they're seeing, they need to they, they need to know the difference between what's important in an image. So it's not just a matter of compressing the image size, but when the models take a look and try to relate um, uh, the the new image to the data set, they have to determine. What part of that image is important, regardless of how compressed the image size is? And so, for example, there's a technique called sparsity. Um, and this refers to, um, if you think about a matrix, a neural network um, is, is uh, mainly doing a lot of matrix operations. There's a lot of uh, zero values mm-hmm. in matrices that don't actually um, improve the accuracy because the um, the, the the neuron next to it is exactly the same value. So there are techniques for helping uh, applying sparsity to models so that the models can be smaller um, without losing a whole lot of accuracy um, and therefore can live in more constrained devices from a power and area standpoint. So, you know, so there there is stuff happening within the 
the um, the software part in order to make sure that the uh, that the graphs themselves are are manageable for for a constrained device. Uh, I'm trying to listen to what you just told me. Things are getting more complex, but you're trying to simplify them. But uh, there's a there's a relationship between power consumption and and processing. Um, and, and I'm wondering if uh, to what what the what the interplay is between um, the complexity of the problem, uh, what you're doing in terms of processing to sol- to solve that problem, and and power consumption. Right. Well, that's a good, that's a good point because you know a lot of what we've been talking about with respect to AI sounds like a lot of software, and, and it is. Um, at the end of the day, you can accomplish AI on almost any kind of an execution mm-hmm. engine, whether it's um, you know a general purpose CPU, uh, general purpose DSP, of course GPUs um, early on became the popular choice, right? Because they were they were structurally and architected in a way that they did they did matrix uh, matrix operations more efficiently than, for example, CPUs and DSPs. Mm-hmm. But you can run AI on virtually every device. What's been happening in recent years is you see a bunch of specialization happening specifically to create architectures that are specialized for running AI workloads. Things like TPUs, which uh, are tensor processing mm-hmm. unit, um, and they come in lots of they, they, things have different names. Um, NPUs, which stands for neural processing unit, they are you know specifically architected for AI workloads. Can you take an AI workload that runs on an NPU and run it on a general purpose CPU or DSP? Possibly you can. The question, as you were implying, is what does it do to the efficiency of running that graph on a general purpose processor versus a specialized mm-hmm. processor? And there can be orders of magnitude um, of efficiency difference between the two. And that, of course, plays into the whole power and area uh, envelope that you that you referenced that has to be taken into account specifically for edge devices. The other element on the processing side is, you know, these uh, the things that I mentioned with a U at the end, mm-hmm. uh, CPUs and TPUs and NPUs. That implies a, a an architecture that may be configurable, but it's kind of used for these specialized workloads. We see a lot of our customers um, with you know, very specific use cases that are building their own neural network accelerators um, that a general, that even a general purpose um, process that's been architected to handle, let's say a class or a broad spectrum of AI workloads might not be efficient enough for their specific application. And so they're rolling their own, they're building their own and they're building, you know, their own accelerators. They may live alongside by the way, these accelerators may live side by side with a CPU or a DSP or an NPU, but then they're handling some specific uh, AI workload that is required to maybe perhaps um, you know run at a much higher performance level than you could accomplish in one of the more general purpose processing elements. And so AI is kind of in that you know I would say that learning mode we are as an industry where we are developing. Um, uh, processor architectures that are specifically well suited to do AI better, and so um, you know what our customers are looking for is they're kind of 
AI doesn't replace, by the way, some of the existing processing requirements that exist on an SOC. You have to be able to do, you know, for example, real-time control. You have to be able to do signal processing. And it's not very efficient and maybe not even technically possible to fit all the gates necessary for every kind of processing workload into a single, you know, execution unit processor. So customers are typically looking for um, a way to uh, create heterogeneous processing platforms where they can use uh, any combination connected by a bus of CPUs, DSPs, floating point units, image signal processors, GPUs, and AI accelerators or, or AI or NPUs, neural processing, uh, neural processing units, uh, to, you know, to accomplish whatever the tasks that their specific application is. And so they're looking for, you know, um, to basically kind of mix and match what are the most efficient processing units for the different workloads that I want to accomplish in my application. Interesting, interesting. So uh, you're looking at... Uh if you're a, an enormous company like one of the hyperscalers, um, you could probably you've probably got the expertise to do this in house. If you're a smaller company, AI is kind of new. Um, you might not have that expertise in house, and you might not want to have that expertise in house because you might might not need it consistently. Um, uh, I I imagine that. Uh, <laughs> For, for companies in that class, going out and finding somebody who has the combination of, of expertise and IP and, and design, uh, design expertise is, is a premium. It, it is. And don't forget the tools part of it as well. Um, so there's the hardware piece, which you just described uh, you know, accurately. It's and you know customers are depending on the size of those customers making trade-offs about it's the classic um, you know build versus buy. Um, if if I can find off-the-shelf components, IP for example, that meet my requirements, my PPA, my performance, power, and area requirements, then that's probably the best path for me to go, and I can take my precious resources and devote them to doing things that are more differentiated. And so, um, and so customers are, uh, are making those choices among the vendors that they talk to. Um, the more that they can get from one vendor, usually the better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the tools aspect is also important. And I don't just mean that, I don't only mean the kinds of tools that it takes to implement an SOC. Uh, I'm also talking about the tools that go along with the processor architecture. Processors by themselves, no matter how cleverly architected, you know, are not valuable if you can't program them. <laughs> and the majority of effort that goes into an SOC, it, you know, it's not revolution. It's not a revolutionary thought to understand that most of the effort goes into developing software, and you need to be able to. Uh, take that investment in software from one processor generation to the next. So the tools are hugely important to for programmers to be able to create in an efficient way, and also you know interoperability amongst standards, um, optimizing their software so that it runs in an efficient way on the hardware resources available, and also in, in the case of edge devices. You got to worry about memory. How much memory is on the device? So, uh, code density 
And it seems like something, you know, nobody in the cloud worries about code density, <laughs> no. about how big their pro about how big their program is. Memory is free for the most part in those kinds of applications. In constrained devices, it's not. So you're even looking at things like, do my compilers create very dense uh, programs? And so, you know, some of the compilers are more optimized and better at doing that than others. And so you take all of these things into account, the tools that are required, the um, operating systems that are available, the library building blocks for doing my machine learning applications, and how well do they allow me to map onto the different hardware resources I have. You know, all of those things are kind of um, you know, taken into account by developers of SOC when they're looking at making vendor choices. We've been talking about AI at the edge with Matt Gutierrez from Synopsys. I mentioned that with the acquisition of Virage last year, Synopsys now has a richer IP portfolio to offer its customers. Here's Matt offering some specifics about what that includes. Most people know that Synopsys is a provider of EDA tools for implementing and verifying uh, SOCs. And of course, we're well known for our broad portfolio of IP. One of the IP product lines within Synopsys is the ARC processor IP portfolio, which is uh, specifically architected for embedded devices. So devices that have power and area constraints. And so we've developed a family of, uh, of processors for different uh, processing workloads. We have CPUs, we have DSPs, uh, including high-end vector DSPs. We have vision processors. We have narrow network accelerators. So we recognize that uh, SOCs are becoming more and more heterogeneous. And specifically in edge devices, you need to be able to be efficient at processing workloads. You can't do it all on one big processor. You need to break up. Uh, those workloads into the kinds of processing elements that are going to do it in a most power and area efficient way. And that's kind of how we've constructed uh, our ARC portfolio. If you're looking to learn more about AI at the Edge, take a look at this podcast episode's webpage and find the section titled Other References. There you'll find additional resources provided by our sponsor. And that brings another episode of the Weekly Briefing to its end. Thank you for listening. We'd also like to thank Synopsys, our sponsor for this episode. Synopsys, powering the new era of smart everything from silicon to software. The weekly briefing is available through all the major podcast platforms. But if you find us by visiting us at eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript along with direct links to the other stories we mentioned, as well as other resources. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. Personally, what do you think about walking into a mall and, and having the ads coming after you? Your personal, you know, that's a good question. Yeah, this goes to that whole notion of you know uh, the illusion we all have about (laughs) privacy. Um, And that's a that's a scary that's a scary phrase itself. The illusion of privacy. Indeed, and you know, if you think about the application that you know that we 
that we uh, that is a real application that I think we'll see in the not too distant future of walking into that mall and having something being able to uh, recognize you and your style and make recommendations. I think there are some people um, who will be uh, it'll be a problem for and sometimes on principle, just because it feels like an invasion of privacy of some sort. And I think there are others, um, you know, like uh, myself who may be fashion challenged that might uh, actually appreciate uh, some, some AI brain uh, figuring out what might match my style or my preferences uh, for me and making suggestions of it. So it's, uh, it's not too different than the, um, uh, than the, the trailing that you described on the internet, you know, how, how annoying do you find when you go on Amazon, uh, and you are looking for something that, you know, you get hit with a bunch of, uh, ads on other sites or even on Amazon themselves. Hey, if you bought this, you might be interested in these other five things. Sometimes it's very useful. Sometimes it's annoying. And I think you, the same thing will apply in, in some of the use cases for AI in these more retail kinds of environments. I would like to see like regional variations, like, like if you're, you're in Seattle and you walk into a mall and somebody says, that's a really nice outfit. Um, here's a couple of accessories you might want to consider. Come on over here. And in New York city, you could go to a, to a store and they'd say, Oh my God, who dressed you? Your mother? Come here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You hope that these, um, that this AI isn't giving you a score when you walk in because you don't want to be rated necessarily. You want to be helped. 